0: Hey there, folks. The recent skit on NBC's Saturday Night Live posed a timely question. Does satire have a place in addressing serious issues like anti-Semitism? I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Hello. It is so great to be with you wherever you are joining us from on Ticker Today. Also today, Christmas shoppers are ditching expensive gifts this holiday season for a much more edible item. But first... We kick it off with Ticker Hot Shots and we're joined by Veronica Dudo in New York. Veronica, always great to see you. Now, Saturday Night Live star, Cecily Strong, uh, she backed out of playing Republican Elise Stefanik on the show this past weekend because she was uncomfortable, she says, with the heavily criticized cold open sketch. This is the thing at the very start of the show. Now, uh, she appeared as a guest in the dress rehearsal ahead of the show, but then pulled out last minute because of this sketch. Um, Talk to us about what happened And it brings up this really interesting question about what happens to satire when it takes on a topic which isn't just in the news, but is hugely controversial.
1: So the cold open is usually something that has just happened. It's usually the last sketch that's written. They try to make it as timely as possible with their entire team. So as you mentioned, according to sources, the uh, New York Post is reporting that the actress did pull out that she was uncomfortable. That's what sources were saying. Now, of course, Monday Morning Quarterback, we do know that it was a heavily criticized and controversial skit. Now, this was uh, you know, poking fun of a very serious topic of the testimony that was given by the heads of several Ivy League colleges and universities across the United States, down on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, just this last week, where they were asked where is the line? Do they support free speech when it also includes hate speech? You know, we're listening to a lot of Jewish students on college campuses, you know, 73%, according to a lot of different polls are are saying there's a major uptick in anti-Semitism at these uh, colleges and universities and that, you know, almost half of them feel truly unsafe. And, you know, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, another journalist had done sort of a, um, monologue about this, saying what's what once started out as good intentions to make all students feel safe on college campuses. That apparently it's gotten out of control, and, and it's a really slippery slope. And that a lot of these schools just need to go back to educating students and not trying to, uh, you know, go after some of these social issues. Which is now where we're seeing the issue as to you know if you're letting one side do certain protests, you let the other. And then we're hearing yeah. the heads of the I guess of so the issue
0: comes up. down to whether or not you speak up about it, right? So the three heads of the three different schools, um, which are very much linked to this story of course, um, have come under fire for not doing enough to actually stamp out uh, these protests that have been uh, very anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish uh, and anti-Israeli we should say over the war at the moment in Gaza, in the Middle East. When it comes to comedy shows obviously comedy is about trying to push the line but it is such a fine line there are a lot of jewish comedians a lot of jewish comedians who famously have been involved in saturday night live and still are so it's not a surprise that we have some people saying look i feel a bit uncomfortable about this skit that is their right but do we have to be careful to make sure it doesn't become censorship
1: so that is certainly um, for sure a fine line, you know, free speech is uh, obviously, you know, under the first amendment in the United States, it, it is guaranteed. But again, um, you know, as I mentioned, where is the line for hate speech? And, and we do see this sometimes from a legal perspective, um, you know, of legal minds getting involved in it. I mean, even from this, we saw, you know, an answer, a question posed to uh, Liz McGill, who was the president of the uh, University of Pennsylvania and they were, you know, asking her, does she agree with it? And she said, mm. yes, it was okay. And and mm. since then she's now resigned. Yeah. So it's not an easy, uh, you know, situation moving forward in terms of, of comedy, because mm. again, you know, this is not something that's, that's, you know, being taken as, so serious. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right, let's talk about another serious topic because, as we know at the moment, when it comes to getting to an airport and getting on a plane, it is so much harder than it ever has been. In the US, you've got Southwest Airlines with their flight attendants. We have the same at the moment in Australia with Virgin Australia, where the flight attendants are essentially calling on a Christmas strike as well. But let's talk about Southwest because they've voted down a contract offer reached by negotiators for the airline and the union. The Transport Workers Union Local 556 say that the proposal was voted down 64% to 35%. Obviously, big questions about what that will mean. Southwest, one of the big budget carriers in the United States, probably the biggest. Uh, what will it mean, Veronica? Uh, will Christmas be tough for people or just no flight attendants on the plane will have to serve our own drinks?
1: So this is really incredible because this deal was negotiated across five years, and it still fell apart in the end because it was not ratified by union members. So at this point, the union is saying they're not exactly sure where to go from here. They'd have to try to sit back down at the negotiating table you know, with the airlines. A statement from the airline was saying that this would have been uh, an industry-led agreement. They're saying that they would have offered flight attendants the highest pay that they've ever seen, and yet it was still voted down. So I think this is where we've talked about before. You're seeing sort of, you know, pulling back a, a broader perspective of inflation really hitting mm. people where it hurts. And, and they're trying to, you know, have their cost of living go up Which is such an interesting
0: point because obviously flight attendants are feeling the pinch. Flight attendants mm. um, are really badly paid. If you have a look at what their base pay is, it's not until they start to get some of the bonuses on top, the add-ons that it takes it to something reasonable for having to deal with all those unruly passengers. The idea for me of having to be a flight attendant in an economy class of a budget carrier, uh, well, I'm not sure how I go with that, Veronica, but uh, having flown uh, Frontier and Spirit recently in the United States, I'm not sure how I go. But uh, I think the, the thing is, though, is that if we start paying these people more and then ticket costs go up, that adds to the inflationary pressures and around and around and around we go. It is a tough time. We've got to leave it there. Uh, Talk to you again soon. Take care. Chocolate makers are celebrating an unexpected holiday season boost as shoppers now opt for budget-friendly alternatives to expensive gifts, while luxury items now losing their shine. Sweet treats are shining brighter than ever. As the festive season now approaches quickly, a peculiar trend is emerging among consumers. Instead of splurging on high-end gifts, many are now turning to confectionery at a more affordable and thoughtful option. Chocolates, candles and artisanal sweets have become the new go-to presents, offering Offering a sweet escape from pricey alternatives. Sales of sweets and chocolates have skyrocketed, with some confectioners reporting record-breaking profits. We still want that Rolex. Hong Kong's much-anticipated Patriots-only election witnessed a dismal record-low turnout, leaving both local and international observers somewhat bewildered. The long-anticipated exercise in democracy, touted by Beijing as a step towards stability, seemed to have fallen flat as the city's residents chose to stay away from the polls in droves. Let's head to New York, and David Zhang joins us now from China Insider. Great to see you. This obviously a big test for China. Beijing's view of what Hong Kong should be. How did the people respond?
2: The people really answered by not participating in this election cycle. By voting for only 20% of the entire city district council uh, out of 470 seats shows you exactly how much control Beijing is giving to uh, the voters and so it's precisely right that they call this the patriot-only election, because only those that are in love with the Beijing government's control over Hong Kong uh, participated. And we saw that with the voter turnout, I believe was 27 something percent. Whereas if you compare that to the 2019, voter turnout, that was 71%, so a huge decrease. And I believe um, part of that is due to the 2019-2020 national security law, which uh, draconian by measure and has essentially censored and silenced the city from uh, that point on.
0: Yeah, well, in one side, it feels like what's the point of participating in an election if we know what the results are going to be? The other point could be, though, that, and I'll put this as a question, do the people of Hong Kong now know that Beijing doesn't want elections and so therefore they're not participating? What do you think it sits on?
2: I think it's both, actually. Uh, given the fact that we've seen protests over the years, uh, 2014, 2019, the resistance is clear. It's by physical demonstrations from the people in Hong Kong that they don't want a totalitarian version of government into the city. But then Beijing went ahead and enacted and installed uh, Beijing-appointed leaderships into the city anyways. So I think part of it is Beijing wants to still maintain that shell of that it's a democratic city, But then at the end of the day, I think they want as much control as possible. So I think Hong Kong today is no different than a regular city in in the mainland. And uh, they don't wish for a free and fair election going forward.
0: You know, David, Hong Kong was one of my favourite cities in the world. All of my expat friends have either lived there or want to live there or plan to live there right up until these draconian laws you mentioned came into force. What is the Hong Kong of today? We know that it was severely battered during the lockdowns of COVID. Cathay Pacific was one of the most impacted airlines in the world, still struggling to return to normality after the lockdowns ended. What's Hong Kong like today? What do you hear? What do you know?
2: Well, unfortunately, for what used to be the economic capital of Asia, uh, Hong Kong has lost its place simply because now it is it cannot compete economically in a free market system as it is now part of China. Uh, socially or politically, you've lost the talent, you've lost the political, uh, I guess you could say activism with the young. Uh, either they were arrested, jailed, or they fled the city, so you've lost talent, you've lost the ideas of loving the city, and now it seems like, you know, you go to Hong Kong, you can still go there and visit the shops, the markets, the, shop, uh, the, the restaurants, but the soul of the city seems to have fled with those that uh, were participating in the marches, in the protests ac- over the years. And so today, I can't say Hong Kong is any different than another city in China, perhaps one that uh, has lost most amount. Over the years,
0: Yeah, well, it's lost to Singapore, right? Because that's where so many of the Western expats and banks have gone to. Do you think it'll get worse? Do you think we'll see more banks, more of the big international companies shift out of Hong Kong, which had once been, I suppose, the British port, uh, the Western British port to China. Now it's become the Chinese Western port to China. And slowly but surely, that seems to be ending. Do you think that it will go uh, in the direction of opening up more to the West? Or do you think it will be further closed off to the West?
2: I think it will be further closed off. We've seen that Moody's has downgraded Hong Kong, Macau, and mainland China's future outlook for their credit uh, credit ratings. And this is a reflection on, unfortunately, I think Western investors and, and companies realize that Hong Kong today cannot make them as much money as before. And, and the core of this is there's a political umbrella overshadowing everything, including Hong Kong. Uh, where the central government in Beijing does everything politically over economic uh, rationality. So I think at the end of the day, it's going to get worse. Uh, in fact, I think it's accelerating towards that the same way that mainland Chinese cities like Shanghai and Beijing are going to uh, close off more too. All right,
0: David Zhang from China Inside. I love your publication and your work. Always here on Ticker. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That is Ticker today. More right after this.
2: You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes.